As we begin this morning, just uh, listen to a few quotes uh, that were written by Bible scholars on our passage for this morning. There is no sadder prayer in the Psalter. Or another writer, Psalm 88 is regarded as the bleakest in the collection. The pleas for help at the beginning gurgle in watery darkness at the end. Or finally, finally, assuredly, if ever there was a song of sorrow and a psalm of sadness, this is one. Now, in general, we, we don't love sad songs. If we were to survey this morning and say, hey, well, what's your favorite song? I'm guessing most of the tunes that you would start naming are happy songs, upbeat songs, uplifting songs. Songs And although we know there, there can be sad songs that are moving and powerful, we, we tend to gravitate towards the songs that are happy. Uh, you know, even you think of worship songs. When was the last time you sang a worship song that was in a minor key, right? It's not very often. Or we also really like it when things resolve, even musically. Uh, when I was the worship pastor back at our, our sending church, it was a very clap-happy church. Uh, not so much during the songs, but at the end of every song, they would clap. You guys, on the other hand, can't quite seem to make up your minds on that one. Um, and I don't, I don't totally care. It's whether you clap or don't clap, you're doing it for the Lord, and you know that's what it's all about, not the music or the band or anything else. We're here to worship God, right? And that's what they were doing. They were clapping as an expression to worship God, and they would do it at the end of every song unless, you know... It, it, those of you that are musical, you might understand what I'm talking about. Most songs, they resolve to the, the one, right? The, the dominant chord of whatever key the song is in. But every once in a while, the song ends on the four chord, which just kind of hangs, and it leaves some tension there. And if we would do that, no matter how obvious we made it, this is the end of the song. We're done now. They wouldn't clap, right? Because there was just something in them that, no, no it's supposed to resolve. It's supposed to sound like this, and that doesn't sound like that. So you must be like waiting And you're going to do something else, right? And they didn't get it because we want things to resolve. And that's the way we are with music. That's the way we are with songs. That's often the way we are with psalms in the Bible. The the scriptural music, the scriptural hymn book. We like the happy psalms, the uplifting psalms of praise to the Lord. Or the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Those are the things we we want to see, we like to see in the Psalms. Or yeah, I know there's some sad uh, Psalms, but I really like it when those sad Psalms resolve at the end. And even though the, the psalmist is crying out at the end, he's saying, I will sing of your steadfast love, right? And, and that's what happens in all the sad Psalms, right? They, they, they eventually resolve at the end, right? Not Psalm 88. It doesn't resolve at the end. So why, in a summer where we even just have a limited time in the Psalms, we're not doing all 150 Psalms, why would we choose this one of all Psalms? Well, we want to remember that suffering is an unavoidable reality in this life. Everybody in this room is going to have to deal with suffering. And some more than others... And sometimes you might deal with suffering by coming alongside someone who is in suffering. We cannot ignore the reality of suffering. We can't ignore that many of you right here this morning, if you were being honest, you would say, I'm I'm suffering inside. Or there's something going on in my life that, that is difficult, that is hard, that is grieving. And that's where a psalm like this will actually give us some instruction and, and shed some light on situations like that. And so we want to look at this psalm today, and if you haven't already, please take your Bibles, open up to Psalm 88 this morning as we study it together. Before it gets into the text of the psalm, it describes it as a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to the Mahalath Leonoth, likely some musical instruction or a tune, a maskil of He-Man the Ezraite. So that's the author there, this is not King David, it's this guy He-Man the Ezraite, and there's a couple uh, people by this name that we see in Kings and Chronicles, and, and there's no way to know for sure exactly which one it is referring to, but what is clear is this is a, a person that has seen sorrow. As one uh, writer put it, who had done business on the great waters of soul trouble. 
That's what we know as we read this psalm. We see about this author. This is someone that has experienced suffering, trouble, sorrow. So please follow along as I read Psalm 88 for us. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. For you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept me, has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me all together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So there it is. Beginning with a cry for help, ending in darkness all alone. How do we deal with that? And it's something we need to deal with because we don't naturally like to deal with suffering. Some of this is just natural. I mean, if I gave you the choice after church today, would you like to go home and relax or go home and suffer, right? I'm no mind reader, but I read all your minds on that one. It was unanimous, right? No one wants to just, oh yeah, suffering sounds great today. Naturally, we would never choose that. And so many times we avoid suffering and we seek to avoid thinking about suffering. It's not only natural, some of it is cultural. We live in a moment where we have not had to deal with suffering like many other people have throughout history or around the world. Because if you've grown up in the United States of America, you've grown up in one of the most prosperous societies in the history of humanity, where in general people are taken care of and you have many advantages that others have not. Or even as a Christian, you likely have not experienced the persecution that others have experienced. And sure, you faced opposition and persecution for your faith, but it has not matched the suffering that many others have experienced in other cultures. Some of our aversion to suffering or thinking deeply about suffering is also theological. It comes as a result of bad teaching. I mean, there is teaching in our culture that's popular that really is just a health and wealth prosperity gospel. If you follow God or more, if you give money to my ministry, God will bless you beyond your wildest imaginations. And we know that that's not biblical. The theological term for that kind of teaching is a bunch of baloney, right? That's, that's nowhere in the Bible. But even then, I, I think there's a lot of thinking like that that might not be so out and out or heretical, but it really, if you listen to a lot of popular sermons today and a lot of popular Christian songs, the general idea seems to be God is really big, God is really good, and he's going to fight your battles and take care of your problems for you without really dealing with the weight of suffering and problems that can actually be there. And so we need to admit, even though naturally I don't want to think about it culturally, maybe I haven't had to deal with it theologically, I'd rather kind of write it off. We cannot ignore suffering. We cannot write it off. We cannot act like it's never going to happen or just pretend that none of you are dealing with suffering today. And that's one of the reasons why we need to spend some time with Psalm 88. 
Because there is nothing we can just kind of skip over. Well, here's the good part, and we can ignore the suffering. It's going to force us to sit with the reality of suffering. So for point number one, let's put it down this way this morning. Just as kind of as we take in the whole psalm as a, in one total piece, sit with the mystifying reality of intense suffering. Sit. Let's just sit here with the mystifying reality of intense suffering. Let's be honest and admit suffering is real. And it can often be brutal. It can be intense, acute, painful suffering. And you might have no idea why. It's mystifying. It's perplexing. You're scratching your head saying, I don't know why this is happening or why this is still happening or why this is happening to me. I don't, I don't get it, but it's painful and it hurts. But let's look at how the psalmist, let's go through the psalm and see how he describes his troubles. He starts describing his troubles in verse 3 by saying, my soul is full of troubles. Now, when you say you're full, we often think of the idea of our bellies, right? I'm, I'm stuffed, right? And that's actually the, the idea of this Hebrew word. It's, it's the word they would use to describe being full of food. Right? Have you ever just been like uncomfortably full in your life where you're like, I'm regretting choices that I made? Remember one time back when I was still doing college ministry and Pastor Charlie and I were doing college ministry together, he was leading one of the small groups. It was small group fellowship night. So they were all splitting up and doing different things. And his group was going to all you could eat sushi. And so I'm thinking, ah, oh, which, which, which group should I join tonight? I was like, no, I'll join the group that's doing all you can eat sushi. That sounds like a good time. And so we're there, we're having a good time, a fellowship with these young men eating a lot of sushi. And just as we're all kind of, you know, all right, we're ready to tap out a whole new wave of plates of fresh sushi come to our table. And we're looking around like, which one of you knuckleheads ordered more sushi? Like nobody is ready to eat this. And we would not have gotten out of there alive if it wasn't for one young man named Peng who was sitting in the corner, just a silent assassin, just destroying these rolls of sushi. But when it was done, like, I, I was stuffed. I remember going back to my office at the church. I literally laid down on the floor in the fetal position, right? Because I was so uncomfortable. And maybe you felt that way with food, but the point is, that's how he feels with sorrow. That's how he feels with his troubles. And I remember, like, one of the reasons I laid down is like, well, maybe if I just, like, doze off, the pain will go away, Right? And he's saying, my soul is so full of heartache, of trouble, of pain, that my life draws near to Sheol. I feel like I'm about to die, and you know what? I might even welcome that. Because in that sense, falling asleep would at least make this pain go away. And this isn't a a suicidal expression that's never the biblical idea. But he is saying, "I I am so full. One translation puts it, my soul is saturated with calamities. Can you really imagine saying that about your own life? Man, I'm just stuffed with sorrow, pain, heartache. That's what he is saying here. And he goes on in verse 4, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. Right, Not a nice place, even kind of getting us a lot of different words used to describe uh, the place of death or even the pit. Maybe it makes you think of Joseph where he was thrown as his brothers decided what to do with him. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead. And even there, set loose almost has that idea of, hey, at least in death, there would be some freedom. At least in death, I would be free from this pain, free from the responsibility or whatever it is. But then I'd be in the grave and I'd be forgotten. I mean, the grave is a sign, God, even that you have forgotten someone. They are cut off from your hand. And then it gets even more intense, because if you think of one of the happy Psalms, Psalm 23, you all know that one, right? There's this really wonderful moment in there where he's speaking about the Lord, he is my shepherd, and he keeps speaking in the third person, he makes me lie down in greed pastures, he leads me beside still waters. But when the, the, the problems get a little more intense, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it shifts from the third person to the second person. I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. And he's drawing even closer to God. Well, we see a shift here in Psalm 88 to the second person. Uh, Look at this one. You have put me in the depths of the pit, right? When he's thinking of God and what God has done, he's saying, God, you've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark 
and deep. Instead of your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves, right? And that's the picture, right? If you've been to the ocean, or maybe you've tried to to surf or something, and you wipe out on a wave, and by the time you finally come back up, the next wave just comes crashing down on you. And you repeat the process, come back up, and wave after wave crashes down on you. And that's what he's saying. That's what it feels like with my trials, with my troubles. As soon as something feels like it's going better, crash, the next wave comes. And that's where you you can probably all relate to that on some level. Maybe it's been something that in the grand scale of things isn't that big of a deal, but maybe it's just even the health of your family, where one person goes down and just when it seems like, all right, they're feeling better, wham, the next wave comes. And then the next and the next, and you wonder, will we ever be healthy again? Will we ever be able to go out and do anything ever again, or will we be sick until Jesus comes back, right? But maybe it's been with things much more serious. Maybe it's death, tragedy, extreme financial trouble that as soon as you feel like one thing is getting better, the next thing comes like wave after wave crashing down. Or then he continues in verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. He speaks of loneliness. He's isolated. His friends are not with him anymore. Maybe it's possible that he he was sick in some way that he had to be isolated from his friends or or maybe it's something else we don't know, but uh, he's alone and and he's sad and he's even ascribing that to, uh, to God. And then he says, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. There is, there's no exit from my suffering that I can see. I'm in this dark tunnel and there's no light at the end of it and there's no doors on the side of it that I can punch out of here as an emergency exit. I'm stuck here. And then I say my eyes grow dim through sorrow. I'm all cried out. There's no more tears left to cry. Because of the wave after wave and the isolation and the loneliness and the sorrow and, and all of these things, filling up my soul with troubles. And then, to make matters worse, as we continue to look at his suffering, we'll look at some of the prayers he makes in a moment, but down in verse 14, he gets to the hard part, the question that all of us ask when we're going through a hard time, why, oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? And why do you hide your face from me? And even spiritually, this is really making him scratch his head, right? It's not just because, well, I thought life was always going to be great. But no, he's saying, why do you hide your face from me? Think of what we talked about last week. We referred to Psalm 27, where David says, Lord, you have told me, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face will I seek. And so you can imagine this guy thinking similar things. Wait, God, uh, you told me to seek your face. I'm seeking your face. You've said, when that happens... I'm going to draw near to you. You're going to draw near to me, but it's not happening. Why? In fact, it feels like I'm seeking your face, but you are hiding from me. Why, God? Why are you doing this? And he doesn't know. He's scratching his head, even spiritually, trying to think according to what God has said. And verse 15, he says, this is how I felt my whole life, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. Verse 16, Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. I have never seen that verse on Instagram, right? With some cute picture in the background, right? Hey, here's your motivational thought for today. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. But that's how he feels. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in, right? There's the the picture you've seen of, you know, the person sitting on the roof of their house as the waters rise, That's how he feels. All my troubles that God is bringing into my life, I'm sitting here all alone and the water's rising and I've got nowhere to go. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness or darkness has become my only companion. There's nobody here as the waters rise. There's nobody here to pull me out. And that's where as you think through this suffering, there's probably something here that all of you can relate to, but many of you, if you're being honest, 
uh, you're saying, I don't know that I've ever quite been this low. I, I don't know that I can quite relate to this kind of suffering. I haven't suffered quite like that. And maybe some of you feel like that actually feels where I am. But I think for all of us, one value of looking at this psalm is the reminder, the truth, that this kind of suffering is real. And it even happens to God's people. It even happens to godly people. And I want you to know that. Even one of the reasons for this sermon is that I feel as a pastor, I see so many people just walk through life never thinking about suffering until I'm suffering. And then I start to think about it. Well, where is this coming from? Well, let's look at passages of Scripture like this to remember this is a real experience for God's people, and you might feel like this. And that's where you might say, wait a second there, Pastor. I've actually been to all of these Psalms sermons this summer. And in Psalm 1, didn't you say, or actually, didn't the Bible say that blessed is the man right, who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Whatever he does, he prospers. I thought we were going to prosper. Now you're saying I'm going to suffer? Or last week, Psalm 26, didn't you tell us integrity leads to security? But now you're saying maybe not? Maybe suffering? Or I read your mind, Pastor, and I know next week we're looking at Psalm 84. And that says nothing does God, no good thing does God withhold from those that walk uprightly. What are you saying? And part of what I'm trying to tell you is all of that is true. It's not one or the other. It is, yes, security that comes from integrity does not mean you will not suffer. It does not mean that you will not have sorrow or grief or pain in your own life. Even Psalm 1, that prosperity it speaks of, the idea of the tree planted by the the streams doesn't mean that it's not going to be hot and a desert. And the prosperity will be mixed with that suffering. And even in the midst of that suffering, and God's promises that he holds no good thing back from those who walk uprightly is a promise we should hold on to in the midst of suffering. But sometimes we have to sit in this kind of suffering. And it doesn't end. It doesn't go away. Even the internal feelings just of sorrow and grief and pain that you feel in the midst of that won't necessarily go away. Let's look at one other psalm that's similar to this. To kind of think more about this, turn with me to Psalm 42. Now, Psalm 42 is probably more likely one that you're familiar with and probably more likely one to be preached on because while it touches on some of these same themes of Suffering, there is more of a sense of resolution. There are parts that are much more positive in this psalm. And as we look at this and kind of hold it next to Psalm 88, there's one thing I want us to see that is instructive, that I think should help show us what we should do in situations of suffering, but also there's one caution that I want to give us. If you look at Psalm 42, I mean, you're familiar with the first verse if you were a Christian in the 1990s because you sang it, right? As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God, right? But what we, that song kind of misses is this is a song, a psalm about suffering. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Or then down in verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. And then verse 7, another thing I think a lot of Christian songs have got wrong. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I think again, the sense of that is not like, oh, deep calls to deep. This is wonderful. No, it's again, the waves crashing on me. The waves of suffering and of sorrow and of pain. When are they going to stop? When am I going to finally come up for air and find that things are calm around me? Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So all those things sound very similar to Psalm 88. But in Psalm 42, in Psalm 43, there is this chorus almost that it keeps coming back to. Like we sing songs where there's the verse and then you come back and sing the same chorus. Three times, there's the same chorus in these two psalms, you see it there in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Three times he comes back to that exact same refrain. And that's where that's instructive for us because it leads us to this principle that in suffering, hey, Christian, you can't just listen to yourself. You can't just listen to your circumstances or your feelings. You've got to talk to yourself. You've got to direct your thoughts, direct your mind, direct your soul. In fact, that's become a a famous quote in Christianity from one of the books that's recommended on the back, Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He writes in that book, commenting on Psalm 42, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And we talked about this. If you've been reading through the Bible with us, we recently read Psalm 42. And he goes on to say, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are there talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Someone is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. And we can all relate to that. He's not describing some psychotic or schizophrenic experience, right? He's describing how you feel when you wake up. And, and, and oh, yeah, that happened yesterday. And, and uh, oh, I'm worried about this today. And you're not necessarily consciously bringing all these things up. They're just coming into your mind. All the problems of yesterday, all the worries of today, all the fears of tomorrow... Poof, there they are. And he says, now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. And so that's where what's instructive, that is a solid principle that you need to take into your suffering. When you are suffering, direct yourselves to Scripture. Direct yourselves to the truth and the promises of God. Don't just listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. But here comes the caution that I want to give you. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's helpful that Psalm 88 is there. Because if all we had was Psalm 42, I think we would start sometimes thinking, well, when I'm feeling troubled... All I got to do is instead of listen to myself, talk to myself, and then all my problems will go away. And what Psalm 88 reminds us of is not necessarily. Sometimes you will do those right things of directing yourself, talking to yourself, pointing yourself back to God, and the trouble will still be there and the sorrow that comes along with it. Sometimes the clouds will part as you talk to yourself, and the rays of the sunshine of God's grace will warm your soul again. But sometimes, like we see in Psalm 88, the clouds remain. And you still don't know why. And you still don't know when it's going to stop. And your soul is still full of troubles. And that's okay. I hope you hear that this morning. Because I do think sometimes we subtly start to think, well, if you're experiencing trials, or especially if you're really sorrowful and sad, and it's really painful going through those trials, you must not be doing something right. And I don't think that's biblical. Sure, there's things we can do in our suffering that make it a lot worse. But even sometimes in our suffering, when we're doing what God calls us to do, it's still suffering and it's still sorrowful. There is a sadness, a sorrow, and even a depression that God's people, even godly people, will experience in this life. And I want you to hear that for yourself, and I want you to hear that for other people here this morning. First, hear it for yourself. Christian, it's okay to suffer. And in the midst of that suffering, it's okay to be sorrowful. It's okay to cry. It's okay, like Psalm 88, to pour out your heart to God and tell Him how you really feel. He can handle it, right? He can handle your emotions, your questions. Now, Psalm 88 doesn't do everything. Don't use it as an excuse for extremes. For instance, in your suffering, no matter how bad it is, it's not okay to curse God. That's not what we see Psalm 88 do. And, I mean, think of the example of Job. Even he, in his response to trouble, he wasn't perfect. He didn't do everything right, but he is commended as an example to us that he did not curse God. Even when his wife said, curse God and die. He said, no, no, no. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we accept good from God and not also evil? And he refused to curse God. He refused to forsake God. So, yeah, don't use your suffering as an excuse to 
curse God, forsake God, or disobey God. But there will be times where it's tough and it's hard and and you're sad and you don't know why. And there is no instant resolution, even though you've done the things you know you're supposed to do. And that's, that's okay. But I also want you to hear this for others. Consider this in your life and how you come alongside other people who are going through this kind of suffering. To put it another way, again, playing off the example of Job, don't be Job's friends. Okay? And some of you might need to hear that. All of us need to hear that from time to time. Where, where you show up to someone that's suffering and you sit with them for a while, but then you say, okay, you're suffering and I know you don't know why, but guess what? I know why. And I'm very happy to tell you. And in fact, the reason why probably has something to do with the fact that you're doing something wrong. So fix it and you'll be fine, right? And we see God, he rebukes those friends for that kind of counsel. Or sometimes what we do, we need to do with those who are suffering is just come and sit with them. And sure, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't share truth with them. But again, measure your expectations. Because just like sometimes for ourselves, we think, well, if I just pray or if I just talk to myself instead of listen to myself, everything will clear up. And sometimes I think we think that way about our counsel. Well, if I just show up to my friend who is suffering and uh, drop this truth bomb on them and remind them, hey, God's faithful, or hey, rejoice in the Lord always, that poof, they'll feel better. Not necessarily. And they do need you to, hey, we can remember God is faithful. But sometimes it's, hey, I'm going to show up and I'm going to sit with you and cry with you. And then, yes, we will talk about the truth of God together, but then I'll just sit with you and cry with you some more, right? And that's what we need. Let's just consider even an encouraging passage. And I want to show you even in that how much suffering there is. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And even as I say Romans chapter 8, many of you are probably thinking, ah, I know where he's going. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God. That's a great verse to share with my friend who's suffering. And yeah, that's true. That is a great verse. But again, don't just think, well, Romans 8, 28. Let's stop being sad now and get on with life and rejoice. Because know that what we see in the context before or after Romans 8, it's about suffering. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So yes, there's positive. Hey, let's think about glory. But talking about how great glory is is not meant to minimize the suffering. No, the suffering is real. And it's hard. And the point is, I'm saying, hey, as bad as that is, there is something still better. But then it goes on to talk about how creation is groaning. And how we, verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Guys, the Christian life isn't always so neat and tidy. Because you you look at, well, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Yeah, that's there. But guess what else is there? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you want to say, well, which is it, pastor? Do I rejoice or do I mourn? Both. And that gets messy sometimes. That's complicated, but that's the Christian life. And so then, yes, we get to this encouragement. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. In verse 31, we know that if God is on our side, who can be against us? But for now, verse 36, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's, it's all there, but it's in the context of suffering. Isaiah 50 verse 10 says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Even even sometimes as somebody who fears the Lord and obeys uh, the Lord, it'll still feel like you're walking in darkness and that there is no light. So what's the point of all this? Hey guys, Life really stinks sometimes, and you're not going to know why. Let's pray. Have a great Sunday, right? Is that why you came to church this morning? Is, is there nothing in Psalm 88 that shows us, well, okay, is that, is that it? It's just really bad, and it, it might stay bad, and there's nothing I can do about it? No, it does give us some instructive things. So turn back with me to Psalm 88, and let's see some of the instructive things that it does show us, even 
in seasons of intense and mystifying trouble. And just remember, what is this song? It's at its heart, it's a prayer. It's a cry out to God. Look again at verses one and two. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. And one thing to notice there is his prayer is constant. Day and night, he's crying out to God. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Or then when he comes back to his prayer, the end of verse eight, I'm so shut in that I cannot escape. Verse nine, my eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. God, every day I'm suffering, but every day I'm praying. And even though verses 10 through 12, I've got all these questions that I don't have answers to. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Again, that sense, every new day that comes, there's going to be, yes, for me, new sufferings, but also new prayers. And so even though there isn't like this really happy, positive part of Psalm 88, we still see by example an exhortation that even when you are suffering, never stop calling out in prayer. Let's write that down for point number two. Never stop calling out in prayer. This psalmist, he man, he is suffering. It is intense. He doesn't even necessarily feel like living anymore. He can't cry anymore. He doesn't know why it's happening. He doesn't know when it will stop. It feels like there is nothing he can do, but he's still praying. Day and night, every day, every morning, he is lifting up his cries and his prayers to God. Don't use your suffering as an excuse to curse God, but also don't use it as an excuse to stop praying. Now, more than just showing us, hey, keep praying, he shows us a little bit of why we should keep praying, and you really see it in verse 1 in just how he refers to God. He starts with, O Lord, which... You have the ESV, it has Lord kind of in all capitals there, which is a reminder, it's referring to that formal name of God, Yahweh, the great I am, which is linked to the book of Exodus and linked to the ideas that God is faithful, he keeps his promises. And so he cries out, oh, great I am, the God who keeps his promises. And then he goes on to call him God of my salvation. He remembers who God is and what God has done for him. And if you are a Christian, you can use that same title for God. God of my salvation. And if you are a believer, you can know for sure that whatever trial you are going through, God has already saved you from something bigger than that. Through the good news of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, who rose again to rescue you from sin and death and transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He's already done that for you. And you can know because this is the great I am, the God who keeps his promises, the God of your salvation, that he will deliver you from something greater than your trial. Because Jesus Christ, our king, will return. And when he does, there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, No more pain forever. And he will deliver you because he is the God of your salvation. And even though that might get you looking back and might get you looking forward, you still say, well, what about right now? Can I get some help right now? And that looking back and looking forward should motivate you to keep praying, even knowing, God, he's going to hear my prayers, but he might not answer them my way. But because I've seen what he's done, and because I know what he is going to do as the God of my salvation, I know that his plan is better than mine. Because if you were there on that first Good Friday, I bet most of you, you would have been praying. You would have been praying, God, Father, deliver Jesus. Get him down off of that cross. And that didn't happen. But that begs the question, did God deliver Jesus? Kind of a trick question. By delivering him off of the cross, bringing him down off of the cross? No. 
but you better believe he delivered Jesus by raising him from the dead. That's not what you would have been thinking about likely that day. And that's where when we think through our own suffering, you might feel like I'm on the cross right now. God, get me off of here. I guarantee you, he's got a plan to deliver you, but it might look different. And that's where it's, it's painful. Again, Psalm 88, don't minimize the pain of this suffering, but there is something still in this psalmist saying, I know God is the great I am. I know he's the God of my salvation. I'm never going to stop praying. I'm never going to stop crying out to him. One author put it well, thinking about these realities where he said, you don't need to know why you're suffering. That's what we all want to know, right? When we're suffering, that's the question we're asking. Why? Why is this happening? Why am I suffering? He goes on to say, you don't need to know that, but what you do need to know is why you trust God. That's what you need to know in suffering. Why do you trust God? Because that is one that's going to motivate you to keep praying. And if you're looking, even in the darkness, for just one reason to trust God, it should be, He's the God of my salvation. And I know He's delivered me from sin. I know what He is going to do. And I have no clue what He's going to do right now or how or why or when. But He is the God of my salvation. So I will continue to cry out to Him. To give up on prayer is to give up on God. And that's never something that we want to do. He is the God of our salvation. Very similar to that verse in Isaiah 50 verse 10. It reminded me of something that C.S. Lewis writes in that book, The Screwtape Letters. That's a fictional book, though, of an older demon writing these letters to this younger demon. And so remember, when they write and refer to our enemy, they're talking about God. Um, But he writes in one of the letters, Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. And I would add to that, and still prays, right? And that that seems like it's talking about Psalm 88. Here's this guy, he's looking around. He feels like every trace of God has vanished. He feels like he's been forsaken, but he's still there crying out to the God of his salvation. And that is instructive for us. The psalm also instructs us really on the content of those prayers. What should those prayers uh, look like? And that's where you look at verses 10 through 12. And even though it seems like a bunch of questions, it actually is showing us a lot about what this psalmist really cares about. Look at those verses again. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? And before you get too theological and say, well, there will be a resurrection someday, that's not what he's thinking about right here. Yes, if you die in Christ, you will rise again someday, but never again in this life will you rise up to praise the Lord. You will be dead. You'll be doing nothing, right? Your body will be in the ground. You're not praising God in this world anymore. Then verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon, another word describing Sheol or the place of the dead, are, are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And that's where, look past those questions a little bit and ask why, why does he want God's help? Why does he want God to deliver him? And these verses show us the reason why is he wants God to be praised. That's why. So let's put that down for point number three. Never stop seeking to praise God. Never stop seeking to praise God. And even though this psalm seems very different from our last psalm, Psalm 26, you see again this theme, worship is the priority. What does he man want more than anything, apparently? I want people to know about God's steadfast love and his faithfulness and his wonders and his righteousness. And God, if you don't deliver me, how am I going to do that? How am I going to tell people about these things? things. And that's where the heart of this psalm is actually the same heart as some of the happy psalms. Just flip over one page to Psalm 92. This is a happy song. We used to sing a version of this song in the early days of our church. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. That's the same steadfast love. 
faithfulness, it goes on to talk about the works of God. Another way you could say that is his wonders. Psalm 92 is, is singing about the same things that Psalm 88 is singing about. The heart of both of these psalms is worship. And in suffering, that still needs to be our heart. I want God to be praised. And that's another question we need to ask in your suffering. What is your greatest desire? Is it your comfort or is it God's glory? Is it your comfort in a better circumstance or is it really I want to worship God and see him praised? Which is it? And again, I'm not saying that if you really want to worship God in your suffering, your suffering won't be suffering. No, it'll still be suffering. But in some ways, it will be better than if it's really all about you. Turn with me to one other example of these kind of motives in prayer. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 14. And yes, I'm going to keep turning you to Numbers until you realize it's not a boring book. (laughs) Numbers 14, starting in verse 11, the context here is the, the 12 spies, they've gone out, the 10 have come back and given a bad report. We can't do this. They're too big. They're too strong. While Joshua and Caleb are saying, no, God's with us. We can do it. But the people listen to the 10 bad spies and even get to the point where they're saying, we're turning around, we're picking a new leader, and we're going back to Egypt. And while we're at it, shut up, Joshua and Caleb. We're going to stone you to death. And at that moment, that's when the glory of God appears in the middle of the camp. And God speaks to Moses, verse 11, and says, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And that's where probably most of us, if we were in Moses' sandals at that point, we would say, yes and amen, Lord. Sounds good. Because I'm fed up with these people too. And that whole make of me a greater and mightier, mightier nation, I like the sound of that, right? That's not what Moses does. He immediately pleads with the Lord. And there's a lot of interesting and theological issues that we don't have time to get into today with this passage. I just want you to notice what's his motive. He cries out to God and says, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this nation as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them and that he has killed them in the wilderness. Moses is saying, God, if if you do this, the Egyptians, the other nations, they're going to say the same thing as the 10 bad spies. They're going to say it's because you weren't able to do it, right? But I know different. I know that you are able to, to do it. They're going to say, God, that you don't keep your promises, but I know that you do. And that's what he gets to in verse 11. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, and then he quotes Exodus 34, which those of you overachievers who've really been tracking and you write down all the cross-references throughout this series, I want you to notice how often Exodus 34 has come up. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. He goes to God and says, God, I know who you are because you have revealed yourself to me. You have made your promises And I want everybody else to know how great you are too. That's the heart of his prayer. And really, even though the circumstances are pretty different than Psalm 88, that's this guy's prayer too. He's saying, God, I want people to know about your steadfast love. I want people to know about your faithfulness, your wonders, your righteousness. Even in his suffering, these are the things that he comes back to. So even though this Psalm doesn't have that uplifting part where he's like, but I will trust in your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Those things are still very much there in the heart of the psalmist. And they need to be in your heart as you seek God. And then you need to trust that God will use you to praise him. But again, you don't know why. And there's this irony even in their questions. In his questions, 
here, right? For instance, do the departed rise up to praise you? We've already talked about, well, in one sense, no, they don't. But in another sense, right? Here we are, probably 3,000 years later, after this psalm has been written, and guess what? This dead guy is exhorting us to think of the steadfast love, the faithfulness, the wonders, and the righteousness of God. Here's this guy in the grave being used by God to cause us to praise the Lord. And that's where, just a reminder, you might not know why. You may never in this life know why. But you can trust God's going to use it even when I don't see it. You think he man knew that we'd be talking about this 3,000 years later? I don't think so. We see God use these things. It's kind of like Hebrews 11 says of Abel, though he died through his faith, he still speaks. Maybe God uses your faith in sorrow to speak in ways that you might never even realize or you could never even imagine. So it's a very different psalm today in Psalm 88. I think it is needed for us to to grapple with suffering. It's needed for our own hearts, whether that's right now or it's in the future. It's needful for us as we minister to others. We need Psalm 88. Let's pray together. God, we do want to thank you for your word. It is good, every part of it, even the chapters that leave us scratching our heads, even the chapters that don't have the night, neat, tidy answers that we want. God, they still speak to us. They show us your will. They show us your heart. God, they do give us instruction on things like we've seen here, Lord. But I do want to pray for those that are are suffering this morning. God, would you encourage them? God, would you even just spare some that are suffering this morning from a false sense of of guilt, uh, just telling themselves that if they are suffering or if they are sorrowful, they must be doing something wrong. God, Scripture reminds us that's not always true. Lord, bring encouragement to those that are suffering. Equip all of us to think more rightly when we suffer and help us, God, to be better companions to those that do suffer and are suffering, God. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you are the God of our salvation. And no matter what, we can trust you and that we can call out to you in prayer. So God, we lift all of this up to you now. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.